This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. My mom says my neighborhood school isn't good enough. How am I supposed to know my kids are getting the best education possible? Welcome to Good Schools for All, a podcast from the investigative news organization Voice of San Diego and the Education Synergy Alliance. We cut through the jargon and polarized debate to get you the news and ideas that matter. Good schools are at the heart of our democracy and economy, and we're about good schools for all kids. We hope you'll learn and maybe teach us something. It should be an excellent school in every community. Enjoy the show. I'm Laura Cohn, Executive Director of the Education Synergy Alliance, and Scott Lewis is on vacation, so I'm joined today by Mario Curran. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, that, that intro song really gets me going. My heart's beating a little quicker now. I'm ready to talk. Excellent. We're jazzed. <laughs> we're ready to talk. Uh, we're, talking, we're taking on a, a big, important topic today, the school-to-prison pipeline. That's right. Um, time. Yeah, we'll see what we can do to... Um, help everyone think about what that is, what it means, and, and what San Diego's doing about it. Uh-huh. You've been doing a lot of reporting about the school-to-prison pipeline. What, what caused you to take it on? Um, well, I, I mean, I just think that it gets to this fundamental question of, of equity and really how we're meeting students as they come in the door and uh, sort of how we're responding to them. Um, recently I had, can I tell you, an anecdote, a Scott-like anecdote? Yeah, you got to tell us an anecdote. <laughs> All right. Bring a kid in the room. All right. So my daughter is, <clears throat> she's three, so she's young. She hasn't entered yet the formal schooling system. We take her to a uh, private daycare. So, um, But there is a little boy in her class. Let's call him Michael. Uh, well, sort of, it's a nice racially neutral name and socioeconomically neutral name there. But Michael is quite a handful. Michael likes to... Uh, pull hair and and punch and and sometimes bite and we see this a lot coming out you know we sometimes I'll see it on his reports they send these little reports home and a lot of times Michael has his marked up so anyways I, I'm taking Lucia home it's my daughter's name taking her home from school a couple of weeks ago and I say Lucia how was your day and she said it was bad and I said why is it bad and she said because Michael hit me right and so that's not what you want to hear as a parent you don't want to hear your how was your day? You don't want to hear that they were hurt for, for whatever reason. No. So, I, so I get home and I write, you know, I go into my, my protective mode. I'm a dad now, right? So I write this strongly worded email to the daycare director, letting her know that this isn't acceptable, that I need, um, that I need to know that there's going to be a plan in place, right? So I'm, I'm worked up. And my picture of Michael in my head is of this sort of three-year-old muscled bully who's just coming in to pick on my daughter, right? And I have some angry words that I'd like to share with his parents. Well, I go to school the next day to drop my daughter off, and I walk in the door, and there's Michael listening to the teacher. And I realize that he's just a little boy. He's just a tiny little boy who is probably has these behavioral issues because of just something going on. And I really didn't even think about that. As much as I think about these topics as an education reporter, I didn't consider the context through which Michael was coming to school. At the same time, I think that, you know, as a parent, I just really want to know that my daughter doesn't have to experience pushing or, or 
biting and she doesn't have to go through that and that doesn't have to impact her learning, right? So there's yeah. this question of what's, what's right? I, I want my daughter to be protected. She's got rights. I've got rights as a parent to not send her to school where she's faced with that. But that little boy has rights. You know, what do we do? Would we throw him out of daycare for crying out loud because he's a little boy that can't manage his behavior? So, yeah, I think that story really gets at the heart of the matter, which is the tension that schools are trying to strike between um, creating a safe learning and a safe learning environment for all kids and doing the absolute best by every kid who comes through their doors. And the it seems that our country moved in the direction of thinking punitively, like setting up no zero tolerance um, policies and um, moving quickly to remove problem kids from the classrooms through suspensions and expulsions. But the I, the movement around school to prison pipeline points out that um, too often when we take that punitive approach to discipline, we're setting in motion. Um, a series of events for some kids that um, take them inexorably, it seems, from being a problem child, being troublesome, falling behind in class to being involved in the criminal justice system. Um, so that's that's what we want to explore today. I've had similar experiences to yours, Mario, and I just want to mention that um, suspensions and expulsions from preschools are a shocking phenomenon in the country. So it's not just a high school issue that mm -hmm. we're dealing with, but actually, um, and unfortunately, it's black kids um, in particular who get suspended um, or expelled from preschool. And it's a, it's, 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 sets them, makes them marked um, from an early age for themselves as problem kids and also um, puts their parents in a terrible crisis for how to take care of their kids and starts them thinking about their kid as a problem child. So um, we're, we're sowing the seeds of this really young. Absolutely, absolutely. And so I think that it's, I agree that it's incredibly important that we sort of try to untangle this from, from our, our, our ideas about who's, who's a good kid and who's a bad kid and who's good parents and who's bad parents and just try to really talk about what makes smart sense when it comes to, you know, behavior and discipline. How can we, how can we strike a balance between protecting the rights of kids and protecting the rights of, of, of families who want to keep kids safe. I mean, how can we honor all of that, but put a system in place that, that is uh, effective? Yeah. 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 And I would add also to put tools in the hands of teachers so that they can manage their classroom and feel like they're safe in their classroom as well. Well, we're going to talk to Diana Ross, executive director of Mid-City Can later in the podcast, and she's going to help us think about it. But um, we thought that right now it would help to use the voice um, of a former principal who's now the head of elementary schools in the Madison Public Schools. She made a speech to um, the Teach for America National Conference earlier this year that um, I happened to hear. Her name is Nancy Hanks, and I was really moved by her speech. I really recommend to our listeners, if you hear this um, portion and are interested, we'll make sure to put the link up um, on the podcast. But um, here's Nancy talking about the various ways in which all the actors in the um, in the education system are contributing unwittingly and you know not not with any malice towards the school to prison pipeline. Because see, a part of the problem is when we talk about the school to prison pipeline, some of us are looking for someone to blame, a group, a system, an antagonist or a villain, if you will. We've somehow found a way to conveniently externalize the pipeline. 
We've made it about systems and structures and vestiges, and we've divorced it from the actions that each of us take every day. We've made it this abstract thing, you know, something out there, something to be shunned and examined, a Huffington Post article to share, another cause to tweet. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not asleep or naive or dismissing any of the complexities of institutional racism or mass incarceration or the myriad of forces at work here. But when we do that, when we keep the conversation at that level and we only focus on it that way, it allows us to avoid doing the one thing that none of us want to do, which is make it personal and admit our own fault and contributions to the pipeline. And I know that's hard to hear, but yes, you and I, intelligent, well-intentioned warriors of equity, we contribute to the pipeline. Consider this. If you're a teacher, it's in the moments when the unconscious bias that we all have compels you to address the aggressive or off-task behaviors of your scholars of color, while the identical behaviors of their white peers often go unaddressed banishing those students to the main office, discipline referral form in hand while you continue on with your Common Core Aligned lesson. That's your contribution. If you're a dean or a principal or assistant principal, it's in the powerful decision points that you hold as to whether or not you're going to suspend or expel students sometimes as young as four and five years old because they've somehow disrupted the learning environment or violated one of the often subjective infractions in our codes of conduct. And it's also in the incidents when we deliberately misuse school resource officers, inappropriately involving them in incidents that often don't need officer involvement and escalate in a matter of seconds, blurring the line of what is criminal behavior and simply matters of school discipline. That's your contribution. And if you're a superintendent or a CEO or you run a CMO, then it's in the policies that you fail to change. Continuing to promote zero tolerance, masking it as just a commitment to safety or high and unwavering scholarly-like expectations. Failing to engage your boards and the conversation around the data and the disproportionality because they may think that a more restorative approach will be too soft. And after all, rocking that boat might cost you your next contract. That's your contribution. And I can go on and on, but you get the point. Yes, systems matter. And yes, there are villains out there. But we got to be way more honest and own our piece of this. It's powerful. She is really powerful. And she goes on to tell a story about um, running into one of her former students um, who, whom she had expelled and how moved she was by the experience of running into him. I don't want to give away the outcome, um, but uh, so, because I think it'd be great for listeners to listen to it. But Nancy was really powerful. But we wanted to share that clip because it really um, helps to bring home the different nuances and different ways that the system um, triggers kids to move from just being innocent kids in school to being um, part of the criminal justice system. Absolutely. And what's uh, what was so... I think uh, personal about this, and and really why why it it registered is that she called a bunch of people out, which isn't necessarily to point fingers, but it's also to say, hey, you know, we all have a role in 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 this 
in making this situation better? And what is our role? Because we all have have one to play. Well, there there is a lot of um, responsibility to go around. But one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is because I think it's a good news story. So, um, Mario, there are lots of issues that we work on in um, in education, try to improve. And sometimes it seems really stubborn and like nothing makes progress. But it's been amazing to me to watch this particular issue and see how quickly um, um, people have started to grapple with it and make improvements. So it wasn't so long ago that um, I, that people even started talking about the school to prison pipeline. And But once people understood it, they started really acting to reduce suspensions. So that brings us to our number of the week. The number of the week is the number of suspensions, and it's, um, it's a decline. So it's 34% decline in the number of suspensions across San Diego County in just three years. So down by a third, um, which is an amazing adjustment. So one third fewer kids. So that that represents about 12,000 fewer kids per year who are suspended from schools across San Diego County. That's just a huge change. Um, And but I do want to point out that in California as a whole, the suspension rates have declined even farther for California state wide, it's a 41% decline. So um, change is happening fast. It's happening faster elsewhere than San Diego, but still fast even here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, From the clip that we just played. All right. So I noticed that uh, Nancy Hanks, you know, she talked about the need to personalize this, this conversation. And I think what, what that means, at least to me as a reporter, is that I, I can write about the data. I can write about the racial disparities in the data. And I have. I've written many of those stories, and I've gotten sort of emotionally invested in those stories at times. But one thing that happens after I write them, I, I never really got quite the response from readers that I thought that I anticipated. You know, I would I would stand back and think, this is a real social justice issue. Everybody should care. And I couldn't figure out why people weren't caring. But I think really a part of it was because just reporting the numbers, just reporting what those numbers say, I think doesn't help readers picture or people picture what's actually happening in classrooms. Mm-hmm. I don't doubt that there was, you know, injustice and unfairness happening in classroom, but it became very difficult to get, uh, uh, to get from teachers what was going on. So, you know, as much as I celebrate the numbers reducing, I also want to know whether those kids are uh, modifying their behavior or what's happening to them. You know, so it's like I, I do really appreciate the fact that suspensions are going down, but I, I, I have to do so with a level of caution, you know, what does it, what does it mean? I wonder if people, your, your readers are, um, hearing your reporting or reading your reporting and, and thinking about the issue and thinking sort of the same thing that you thought when you, um, heard from your daughter about getting pushed at school, they're thinking, I'm not 100% sure that I want suspensions to go down because I want to make sure my kid is safe in school and I want to make sure that my the classrooms that they're sitting in are orderly and that learning is taking place. Um, 
So, so maybe they're feeling some uncertainty about whether reducing suspensions is a good thing. Yeah, I will. And I'll also say that, uh, so a couple of years back, I think it was in 2014, um, San Diego Unified invited a team of Harvard researchers to come in and sort of make recommendations on what the dif- district could do differently. One of the recommendations that they made was actually uh, toward restorative justice and what the district could do to implement restorative practices uh, more robustly. Um, at the time, at the time, one of the recommendations was also to sort of celebrate the the progress that's happening and be more transparent with what's actually happening with the data and in classrooms. The district said, "Yeah, that sounds great. That's we approve that recommendation." That has not happened. That has not happened at all. The district has not been more transparent about the data and what's happening in classrooms, and there hasn't really been a place to celebrate what's actually happening if you can't picture uh, what it looks like in the classroom. Yeah. Or maybe even what's not happening. So, sure. you know, what what uh, would be great to hear, and I do remember reading some great quotes from Ralph Swenson, the outgoing superintendent of Grossmont um, Union High School District, about the positive benefits he's seen in his district about um, suspension reductions. But um, it'd be important for school leaders to say, look, we've reduced suspensions by one third and we haven't seen any um, degradation of the classroom environment. And yeah. we think we can reduce it another X percent and still maintain um, positive classroom environments. But Mario, let's go back to, let's make sure to explain this for our listeners. So school to prison pipeline, when you're suspended or expelled, you don't go to jail. So that's not, you know, that's sure. not the pipeline. What um, help, help us um, play out for our listeners where is the pipeline to prison? So why are suspensions and expulsions one step on a pathway that um, may lead to criminal involvement? So this is this is all part of the, I think, the story that needs to be reported out. But, I mean, this this could happen in a number of ways. If, this, if a student gets a referral for um, – so the way that it actually happens within the classroom, I, uh, it's not like a teacher suspends students, right? The student – gets a referral. If they're acting up in, in class, they get a referral. The teacher makes a referral to go see the principal. So the principal is actually the one that makes that determination if they're going to be suspended or expelled. And I think with expulsions, there are another, there's another process there to make sure that it's warranted. Sure. Um, but so the pipeline isn't necessarily like that kid gets suspended from school and all of a sudden they're whisked away on the conveyor belt to prison. Right. It's more of like what happens as a result of that suspension, are they more likely to, I mean, did they come into contact with, uh, with a police officer? And in that case, did it lead to a, a charge that will be handled within the juvenile justice system? And then in that case, is it more likely that they'll uh, be on probation and, and get sort of uh, whisked into the, uh, uh, the adult correction system? So I think it's, it's these types of not only uh, infractions, but I think missed opportunities to intervene and correct correct behavior and get kids sort of on the right path um, that contribute to this this idea, this concept that we talk about as a school to prison pipeline. If there's anything else you could add, no, I think uh, those are all the factors along with the ones that Nancy cited that that I think of. It's just the kid 
becomes all of a sudden um, labeled as a troublemaker and starts to build a self-image of themselves that way. When they're not in school, they have more opportunity to commit crimes. So that's one direct way that suspensions and expulsions can contribute to criminal behavior. They're bored. Mm -hmm. They don't have anything else to do. And so um, there's a long history of documenting that when teacher, uh, sorry, when students aren't in school, they have a higher propensity to, to do things that get them in trouble with the law. So that's that's sort of the direct way, but indirectly it just um, self, uh, affects their self-image and um, can set them on a pathway that's that's really negative. So the question becomes, what is the responsibility of schools um, for doing something different? And um, so I think Nancy talked about dis- individual decisions that um, actors in school districts can make differently, but. Um, Another thing that a lot of people are talking about is something called restorative justice. Mm -hmm. Restorative justice is one different approach to handling school discipline that is getting a lot of support in our community and around the country um, as an alternative to suspensions and expulsions. Do you want to say briefly what it is? Uh, so restorative justice is is it it's sort of a buzzword, frankly. I mean, it's this this, this word that's sort of tossed around, and um, we think we know what it means when we talk about it. But really, it's about writing the writing the wrong, right? Whatever wrong, whatever infraction that's that's committed, it's about getting to the cause of that, and sort of holding a student accountable or whoever committed that behavior, holding that person accountable, which can mean different things, and also figuring out how you can correct that and sort of restore the balance or restore the wrong that was committed. That's yeah. that's the way that I understand it. Right. And it, it involves some specific practices that school leaders, teachers, um, and students use because they're student leaders of restorative justice in some of our schools um, to um, have uh, – um, perpetrator of a wrong and the person who's wronged sit down together with some facilitators and talk out what happened and then arrive together at some um, potential solutions or remedies for for what occurred. And so rather than the um, response to an infraction being a punitive response, instead it's what they are calling or what they're labeling a restorative response with this dialogue and um, and conversation that includes the person who was harmed. I, I think part of my problem with restorative justice is I think some of it sounds uh, a little touchy feely, right? We're going to have uh, we're going to have a talking circle, right? That sounds to to somebody that's not maybe a well versed in this uh, school jargon or this branch of school jargon yeah. uh, that sounds like the, they're just going to get a slap on the wrist right but we know it's a little bit more rust or we know it's more robust than that we also know that it's being it's it's proven to be effective in certain in certain places Absolutely. what what can you tell us about how, uh, how its impact or how it's being effective in in other districts what do we know about that there has been research done on it and that's been it's proven to be um, an effective way for schools to handle justice, but for schools to handle um, misbehavior. However, um, I've also heard that it requires a lot of training, a lot of training of teachers, um, a lot of change of the school culture, not just all of a sudden using this new you know, approach, but just a new thinking and philosophy to get embedded in the school. So it's not something that you can flip a switch and all of a sudden you're a restorative school. It requires um, some investment on the school district's part. Sure. And I mean, one example, when this conversation first started and when the district, it would have been two years ago when the district first started talking about becoming a restorative district and what that means, um, I talked with the head of the, the teachers union, Lindsay Burningham at the time, and I said, Lindsay, do you... 
do you support this, the direction that the district is moving? And I'm paraphrasing the quote, but she said, yes, we support it, but we want to know that there are uh, counselors in place. You know, there's a there's a system in place that can handle students mis- who are misbehaving and aren't appropriate for class. I don't I think that that's just one aspect where this meets money and this meets resources, because if those resources aren't available, if a counselor or whatever you're going to do with that student, place them in school suspension or whatever the alternatives can look like, if those aren't available, then what do you have? Do you just have overlooking the problem behavior? Are those kids just still sitting in class or are they being dealt with, right? I mean, dealt with, not in a punitive way, but in a... Uh, in a supportive way. Right. Are the issues being addressed? Is the classroom environment being uh, managed and restored and um, all of that stuff? Well, uh, no one can deny that it's a good idea to um, look at this issue and the fact that just some sunshine on the issue has resulted in a and a one-third decline or more in suspensions tells me that a lot of the um, way we were handling discipline previously was excessive um, and that we can make some more progress. And there's, I mean, an important piece of this is the disproportionality of it, that black and brown kids are more likely, much more likely to get suspended or expelled for similar infractions um, than, than white kids are. Oh, absolutely. And don't, you know, I've, I've pushed back some on this concept of, of restorative justice and how we talk about it, but that doesn't mean I don't support this effort. I mean, it's it's pretty clear that if you want to if you want to help a kid live a uh, grow into a, a productive adult, that he has to be in he or she has to be in school learning. Right. So, uh, you know, even from, from a financial standpoint, districts have some money at stake, whether they're suspending kids and sending them out or keeping them in school in the classroom. You know, so there's, for a number of reasons, it's a good thing to figure out suspensions and to sort of, and to reduce them and deal with the behavior. Um, But I I think this is a good conversation to have because we're sort of uh, fleshing this out, what this this concept really means and what it entails. Yeah. Well, our guest, um, Diana Ross, and her organization have done um, really good work to put some um, spotlight on the issue, and so has the topic of our What's Working segment this week. So What's Working is that uh, the National Conflict Resolution Center here in San Diego, alongside the Old Globe Theater, had a coup recently. They brought to town... Um, an amazing woman named Anna DeVere Smith. She's an actress who um, has, uh, what she specializes in is one-woman shows where she does a slew of interviews with people around, usually around our country, around a social justice issue. And then in her performance, she brings those people alive in uh, by performing their character. And um, NCRC, that's the National Conflict Resolution Center in Old Globe, brought her to town for a single performance of the piece that she's developing right now, which is about the school-to-prison pipeline. And I was able to go to the performance. Um, It was amazing. And um, we're really hopeful that she'll come back to San Diego when she's got the full piece developed to perform it out. Um, While she was here, she went to Lincoln and to Crawford and had really emotional, powerful conversations with young people in in those schools. So it was a really great visit, and a, um, I, I hope I hope we'll see more of Anna Devere Smith in her in her piece soon. Yeah, I'd like to hear more about that. That sounds great. 
Well, we're joined here in the Voice of San Diego podcast studio by Diana Ross, Executive Director of MidCity Can. Diana, tell us what MidCity Can is. So MidCity Can is a community organizing and advocacy group, and we work on different issues that are lifted up by folks in the neighborhood of City Heights. So, for example, what kinds of issues are you working on now? Halal lunches, um, juvenile justice, and uh, school discipline reform. Great. So I think it's the school discipline reform part of your agenda that um, caused us to bring you in here today. Tell us about uh, things that you're doing with your community to disrupt the school-to-prison pipeline. Well, let's start by talking about what is a school-to-prison pipeline. It's become a really catchy term. I even hear people say, we're the leader in school-to-prison pipeline. And I think, do you really want to say that? (laughs) Do you know what you're saying? So what they're really talking about is the link between school discipline policies, who gets suspended and expelled, and those young people entering the juvenile justice system. So what we know is that there's a very strong link between the two, and that's what the school-to-prison pipeline is. So I don't, I don't think you want to be a leader in that. That's some, No, you definitely do not want to lead that. You want no. to no. <laughs> get in the way of it, please. Right, right. We want to disrupt. How much awareness do you find in the community? You said you, um, as an organization, respond to issues that, that your community members care about. So how did this become an issue for Mid-City Can? We started working on this in 2009. We held over 100 house meetings with thousands of residents from City Heights in 13 languages. And the number one issue to surface from that was community safety. So then we worked with folks to really drill down into that. And really what it surfaced as were my kids are getting in trouble a lot at school and my kids are getting arrested a lot in the neighborhood. But at the same time, the strong desire of people to feel safe and not feeling safe. Drill down further, and what people started talking about really became restorative justice. So people were talking about alternatives to getting their kids in trouble. So tell us, what is restorative justice? So restorative justice and restorative practice is actually a a broad field that includes many things. Some people consider a teen court restorative practice or a uh, peer mediation, restorative practice, peer counseling, things like that. But the restorative justice that we're working on is restorative community conferencing. And what that is, is you have a trained facilitator who works directly with the person who's caused the harm and the person who's been harmed. And so this facilitator preps them and anybody else who needs to be involved in the community to meet face to face and talk out their problems. So, Diana, in talking with people and talking with people in the community, have you gotten, uh, have you heard similar stories and in, in sort of how uh, how it is that the kids from the neighborhood are, are coming into contact or first points of contact with either the the juvenile justice system or um, you know uh, anybody maybe police officers at the school in, in any way? I mean, how does this start on on, uh, on a more common basis, if you understand my question. Yeah, uh, we've heard lots of stories, and I know that I myself have observed many of these instances. Uh, For example, a brother and sister who are heavily involved in our youth council. We held a youth event. Uh, They were leaving a little bit late because they stayed to help clean up. They got picked up by the police on a curfew sweep. And then we were asked to write in a letter to explain where they were and why they were out. But that whole process, uh, I guess the arrest, triggered 
um, a lot of paperwork and a lot of process for the parents and the family. These two kids were straight A students. One's at Humboldt now, and the other one is at um, in San Francisco, both in college. Another student. Um, this one's also. This was also a curfew incident. I turned on the TV one morning. He's ASB president. He's on TV with Governor Brown talking about school reforms. And three days before his 18th birthday, he gets picked up on um, a curfew sweep. So. Curfew, it's not just curfew sweeps, but it's these low-level things that I've heard a lot about becoming kind of the gateway or the first time that then uh, causes them to be intensely monitored, leading to more times and more times. And I hear a lot from people that it's just the troublemakers. But yet, in my observation, it's not just the troublemakers. These are kids who are um, college-bound, straight-A students doing a lot of good things in their community. We hear a lot from parents about their kids getting in trouble consistently at school. Um, there's there's so much to that question, Mario. I could just go on and on. Mm-hmm. So some you're citing some examples of kids who do enter that gateway, but um, have resilience or family support right. or whatever it is that um, makes it so that it's not a pipeline to prison um, and other kids for whom once they enter that gateway, it can degenerate for them into um, a criminal, a criminal career. What's, you know, so what do you see as the difference? And what are the disruptors that you're most excited about? You know, I, I don't, I don't know that there is a difference, because I've also met young people who have repeatedly engaged with law enforcement and the juvenile justice system who are these college-bound kids but can't seem to get out once they're in and their families are struggling to support them. So I think of the kids that I used in my first example as the exception to what's occurring in our neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Disruptions. Uh, Number one to me would be accurate tracking. Uh, We do a lot of research at Mid-City Can to formulate our work, and I could not find, like, a deliberate tracking of kids who are getting in trouble at the school level and what happens to them. Are they entering the system and what is that actual entry point? What I did find was a Sandag study that had studied juvenile justice cases. And in digging into those cases, they could see that 95% of those, of those kids had been suspended at one point, 65% had been expelled and 25% had dropped out. So, there's definitely a link, but no one's really looked closely at that link and no one monitors it on a consistent basis. So it, it sounds like, uh, you know, we it's part of, of trying to understand how we how we fix this school to prison pipeline or at least sort of dismantle it in, in a way to make it more manageable. It seems like we're really lacking a lot of data and we're really, really lacking of uh, an idea of what exactly puts students in this first point of contact with the criminal justice system? Um, but we do know a couple of things about that. Can you tell us what we do know? Right. I'll tell you a little bit about that, and then I want to go back to the disruptions that uh, Laura's talking about. So uh, what we do know is that there's huge disparities in how school discipline is applied and in how policing occurs. So if you're Black, Brown, or Latino, um, you're more likely to get expelled, suspended, or in trouble at school. 
you're also more likely to enter the juvenile justice system. And the disparities are quite large. Um, when it comes to entering the juvenile justice system, I think a lot of that has to do with how we police our communities. So the zip codes with the highest number of kids entering the system have very deliberate, concentrated police efforts every weekend. Those are City Heights 92105, Southeast, and Barrio Logan. So those are zip codes. Those three communities are also high concentrations of people of color. So if you're really intensely... Is it also the case that the schools that the kids in those zip codes attend have higher policing presence um, in their schools? I can't speak to that, but I bet you you're right. Yep, so that could be another factor. It could be another factor. Uh, the same thing with how school discipline is applied in the schools that service those areas, uh, much more rigorous. What we do know, what the data does tell us, is that um, kids who are black and brown are more likely to get harsher punishments. They're more likely by their teachers to get kicked out of the classroom or to be labeled discipline problems from a very, very early age. So what about the disruptions? Yes, what about the disruptions? Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot of work being done right now. Uh, one of them is restorative practices or restorative discipline processes. There's a lot of school districts implementing this with a lot of success. Uh, San Diego Unified itself a couple years back declared itself a restorative district. And I think that there's a strong effort to move away from the traditional punitive punishment model and create options for students that are restorative, but also change the school climate to something that's better for behavior. So kind of an environmental approach. That's the intention. So what's the what's the reality? What's what's the reality? Uh, so our school district was very excited, and they ran immediately and declared themselves a restorative district. And we all said, "Yay!" Mm -hmm. Right? And uh, the rollout has been much slower. There wasn't a lot of thought through to what does it actually mean, and then what's our plan for actually rolling it out. So. The initial shot was we're going to get some volunteer schools and we're going to, we're going to train certain classes to be what's called circle keepers. Mm. And uh, we're going to see how it goes. But there was no resource support and it was done in a very limited capacity. So schools were Hoover, Crawford, San Diego High, and Lincoln. Um, fast forward, advocates and some teachers and some students started saying, well, wait a minute, this is not enough, including Mid-City Can. We said, this is not enough. Uh, this is a very limited restorative justice approach, and you're not backing it with resources to train teachers to actually make a shift. So uh, just a few weeks ago, I believe it was a few weeks ago or maybe even a week ago, uh, the school district uh, publicized their plan to do a district-wide rollout. So we all said, yay. However, that's really only rolling out in the new year, again, in a pilot form at Lincoln High School next year. So they've allocated a, about a million dollars towards that rollout to start at Lincoln. And uh, circle keeping, uh, training, but also reinstating some of the student supports that have dwindled down, like school counselors, student advocates over the year. So with with restorative justice right they or in this more generally we talk about uh suspensions and expulsions mm -hmm. as a problem sort of a 
our first our first option is to suspend the kid. And we understand, I think, collectively as a community, we understand that that's not necessarily meeting the purposes of what this is designed for. I mean, the purpose of, of any sort of justice is to sort of, um, I mean, what's the concept behind restorative justice is, is a bit uh, nebulous to me. So can you first take us through what this means by restorative? And then I'd like to follow up with another question. So the concept of restorative justice is really about healing and making it right. Okay. So versus it, what would the purpose of suspension be? Well, it's punitive. Right. It's we're going to punish you and we're going to scare you. And so you're not going to misbehave because you're afraid of the punishment. And it wasn't always like this in schools. This really started to happen over time. Uh, in Reagan's time, schools moved away from uh, whatever they were doing before and moved more and more to zero tolerance. And zero tolerance is, is also based on that concept. You can't misbehave because there's going to be consequences, right? And I can remember when I was in junior high school, the big consequence we were always threatened with was, you're going to get suspended. Me and my friends used to say, wait a minute, if I do something bad, I get to be home watching TV? That's awesome, right? Yeah. yeah. So sometimes we don't think through what the consequences are. Yeah. Um, but also, on the other hand, other times I do something that a kid would do. Oh, I'm in trouble? Okay, so I'm in trouble, but I'm not really learning from it. I'm just being punished. I'm being made to feel bad for what I did. So restorative is about higher accountability because there's actually a learning in it. Our experience with the people harmed is that they really like it because our system is terribly hard on people who are harmed. Uh, but they really like it because they actually get to sit in front of the person who did something to them and say, hey, you, did you know you impacted me in this way? And the person who caused the harm has to actually look the person in the eye and realize the pain that they caused. So there's a real learning in that. What comes out of it, too, is an action plan. So it's not a freebie. It's not just we're going to talk and we're going to make peace. There's an action plan that the person who did the harm is required to complete. So both people have to agree to this action plan. It's completely voluntary on top of that. So both people have to agree that this is the path they want to take together. And then the action plan has to be completed. Hmm. It has to be. Is there accountability for completion of the action plan? Um. You know, I can't speak to that because I'm not a facilitator of the process, mm -hmm. but what our statistics show from implementing a pilot project with the juvenile justice partners uh, last year is that the completion rate is as high as 98%. Nice. So do we know how, how teachers are feeling? I mean, how, I, a lot of uh, emails and, and responses that I've gotten from teachers is, um, you know, this it, it, first when it rolled out was this is a good idea. We should be thinking about this, right. but we also need to make sure that there's actual supports in place. Right. So if we look at the data, we we know that suspensions are going down. Right. But w what that doesn't show is what's actually happening to that kid is is that kid in, is sitting in class and did the behavior stop or did that stuff work and are they you know behaving better? Yeah, we, we don't really know. And that's part of that data question. Is, is how are we looking at ourselves? Do we really know what's happening? Um, I totally agree. Teachers need the supports and the training in order to implement this more fully. And that's part of um, 
my questioning around what the school district is doing and how are they using resources and what is their plan for district-wide implementation in terms of supporting teachers? Yes, I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around it. We've had a really rapid decline, just over three years, Mm -hmm. huge decrease in suspensions and expulsions in San Diego Unified nationally, actually. Um, Near as I know, it's not like the schools have devolved into chaos because kids aren't being suspended right. or, or expelled at the former rates they are. But um, so first of all, as Mid-City can, is it your objective that the suspension expulsion rates should go down even farther? And um, secondly, what's, you know, what are the pros and cons of that in, in your mind or in Mid-City Can's mind? Yes, we would like to see it go down further. Uh, and we should still be upset because it's really a job half done. The kids who continue to get expended and, and, and expelled and suspended are still majority kids of color, Latino and black, African-American, East African, uh, if you're looking at San Diego. And so there's a huge disparity. But yet this is now the largest population being served in the district. And it's really what San Diego is going to look like tomorrow. So it's important that we make sure kids are in school getting an education so that they're prepared to lead the San Diego of tomorrow. So, yes, it should come down. So, I mean, I just think about the pushback against this. And you probably hear pushback, too. Um, You'll hear people say, well, the disproportionality is because they're disproportionately misbehaving in classrooms. So help our listeners, you know, understand your perspective on why the racial disproportionality is an indicator of bias and not just differences in behavior. It's an indicator of bias because when you study, when studies have been done looking at school data across the country and across California, what you find is that teachers come down harder on students of color. And that's the bias. So a lot of the discipline codes are really subjective. Something like willful defiance is very subjective. And it was put in place to empower teachers to maintain control of the classroom so that they could teach, right? But what you find is that teachers make a subjective decision about behavior. And a lot of that is based on latent racial bias. So no one's going to stand up and say, I'm a racist. I'm deliberately suspending and expelling black and brown kids. But that latent bias I think as a reporter and just a public citizen, I, I, uh, I'm very open to the idea of restorative justice. I don't. I think that a, a punitive type response in every occasion isn't necessarily the right one. At the same time, I, you know, I wonder if this idea of restorative justice. Sometimes I'm, I'm a little, I think, disappointed in the way that the school district presents it, or at least talks about it. Mm-hmm. Because while I'm open to the idea, I can also feel like it's not, they talk about it in very sentimental ways that doesn't make a very convincing case for the type of accountability. I mean, what I want to know as a parent is if there's, a, if there's somebody misbehaving in my class, is it really being dealt with? And right. while I respect that child, I also want to know if that behavior is going to stop. So I guess I'm wondering, when you, when you talk to parents in City Heights or wherever you talk to them, and you talk to them about restorative justice and you tell them, look, there's a better way, I mean, what, what can you tell them about how it works in a way that really lands with them? What do they respond to? Well, most parents I talk to feel that their kids are being unfairly punished. So if this is an opportunity to change that, they... They buy into it. I don't have to do a lot of explaining. I do meet parents who feel that um, 
that punishment is the way because their child's a good child. And so if there's someone else causing problems, then full force. So I made a little bit of both. But the majority, I would say, already feel that there's an unfairness in the system. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't take a lot of explaining to get them to support something like this. And how does that unfairness manifest itself to them? I mean, do they do they have like a common complaint that you notice in a different notice a lot of parents raising? Oh, in so many ways. I mean, anything from the achievement gap to who's being suspended to dual language access issues to who's getting stopped. Why are there police in my neighborhood? Whether uh, parent meetings are being translated into a home language. Uh, it manifests in many, many ways. The the paper is one thing. Disparities on paper is one thing. But, I mean, we have communities that this is part of their experience. This is part of their everyday perception. Right. right? So whether we say, well, it doesn't manifest in the numbers or not, this is in itself a real issue that yeah. we need to deal with. Yeah. When I talk to parents, they're not going to they're not going to quote reports, they're not going to tell me data, they didn't go to the school website and find out. They're just going to tell me their story. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to meet with parent groups who themselves have come together to work on stuff or I'm just going to meet random parent after random parent and the story is very consistent. And uh, what the young people say is very consistent. But then as Mid-City Can, when we go and we research, the data is typically consistent with the stories we hear, um, which surprised me in a way when we first started to see that correlation. Well, Diana Ross, thank you so much for helping to elevate the voices of people who are experiencing um, the school discipline system and whose children, some of them are um, on that conveyor belt between school to prison, most of whom not, though. And um, I think it's just really important the work your, your organization is doing. Thanks so much for coming in. So that was Diana Ross, and it was, it was great to hear from her. Uh, specifically, it was great to hear what's happening and what, what families have to say and the families in the neighborhoods that are most impacted by this. Um, so there's, this is obviously a, a complicated topic at a very important moment. I mean, as, as we're wrestling as a nation on how do we, uh, how do we uh, keep our community safe and how do, we, uh, how do we value all members in our community, this is, this is sort of where it all starts. So, um, uh, you know, some of, the, some of the, the many issues that we highlighted today are, I think it's time to do some more reporting on that and find some more answers because I think this is just a, an issue we're starting to get into and it's a very layered issue. Uh, so there's more work to be done, but I'm glad we're having this conversation. Thanks yeah. for leading the way. Well, and I'm glad that, um, that you're here actually at Voice of San Diego illuminating stories like this. I agree with you hearing from Diana that um, regular families are tuned into these issues and, are, and she's able to activate them around them is a really great sign. And um, we know that the reporting that you do has a huge impact in our in our community and our system. So yeah, have at it. <laughs> More stories is great. Um, so if any of you listening have um, stories or thoughts or reactions that you want to share with us uh, for the podcast, please call in at 619-354-1085. 619-354-1085. And leave us your comment, leave your name and the neighborhood you're calling from, um, or let us know if you would either prefer to be anonymous or if you don't want to be quoted on the air, but we still want to hear from you. You can also send email or comment on Facebook or in the comment section at Voice of San Diego. We love hearing from our listeners. So thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.